This discussion is about academic research and its impact on practice. And we'll be asking how academic research feeds into and influences what practitioners believe and also what they do. How does it influence care and treatment of people at the end of their lives? And how does it affect disposal and what's on offer and the way that family and friends are dealt with? And how does practice shape academic theory? What are the areas of death, dying and disposal to which researchers and academics do not get access? We'll be asking, too, what are the next frontiers for academic research? I'm Winifred Robinson. I'm chairing the discussion. So let's begin the first part of the discussion, and I'll start with an introduction of the panel. And we're aiming for here an explanation of how academic research has changed things. How has academic research grown the knowledge base, replacing myths and things half-known? Our panellists today are, and I'll go from my right to left, Professor Alan Kelleher. He's a medical and public health sociologist. He's currently Professor of Community Health at Middlesex University in London. Through the adoption of his work, there's been a shift from the sole emphasis on clinical bedside direct services style care to one that takes a public health approach involving adopting health promotion and community provisions of care as part of a direct services model. And this approach has brought a balance to the more intensive services approach by encouraging community partnerships. Next is Professor Douglas Davis. He's an anthropologist and a theologian at the University of Durham. Douglas has studied death, dying and the afterlife, and he wrote the Encyclopedia of Cremation. He's also studied natural burial. Nigel Hartley is Director of Supportive Care at St Christopher's Hospice in London. He's worked in end-of-life care for over 20 years, and he's currently developing day and outpatient services at St Christopher's Hospice. Angela Abbott runs bereavement services for Milton Keynes Council. She manages 10 cemeteries, one crematorium with two chapels, three cremators and eight staff. And Arna Arneson is a social anthropologist and senior lecturer at the University of Aberdeen. He's been involved in research on death and grief for a number of years in England, Japan, Scotland and Iceland. And his interests are mainly the narrative construction of the experiences of loss and the politics, politics of death, grief and memorials. In the second section of our discussion, we're asking our panellists for a brief history of attitudes and practice in death, dying and disposal. So how did we get where we are today? Um, Nigel, perhaps you could start. How did dying become something that happens in a hospital? Um, I suppose um, there's something, something about a drive for cure um, and a professional working patterns and professional working partnerships. Um, I suppose I, there's this question, isn't there, about whether it was all much better in the past. I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't know enough about it. But we always hear, oh, people dealt with death 100, 150 years ago much better than we do today. And I don't know whether that's true. Um, I think one of, the, um, one of the other things for me is how we, how we challenge people's attitudes towards death and dying. And I was just thinking when um, Angela was speaking then, about one of the, 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 the things we've been doing at St. Christopher's is around in inviting school children into the hospices mm -hmm. to make relationship with patients and through creating um, artwork together. So, you know, for instance, a group of patients and children have created death masks. They've made pots to put their ashes in. You know, some very sort of um, intense things going on. And 
through that, realizing, and, and, and the research and evaluation we've done of it, realizing, first of all, for people who are dying to realize they've got something to teach has been quite an important thing in terms of changing people's attitudes. But also coming across children from the ages of 10 up to 16 who have had major bereavements in their life that their teachers don't know about, um, that they haven't spoken to anyone about, and have them having an opportunity to, to sort of work that through with people. You know, so, for instance, a 10-year-old girl I was speaking to recently who was in saying her grandmother had actually died at St. Christopher's and she was never allowed to come and see her there. But coming now, for her, it was, it was realizing that actually it, it had been okay, really. So, you know, I think there are some real problems with attitudes to death and dying, and I think hospices, again, have not done very much to change that. Alan, could I ask you, how do you, why do you think care of the dying became a service for professionals? Is it just greater affluence, the um, NHS? Well, I think if you can ask a comparative question like that, if you can ask a historical question, you should always let it rip. And um, the, the reality is that uh, history is probably one and a half million years long in, in, for humans, and for 99% of that, um, death and dying wasn't particularly institutionalised. In the last 10,000 years since settlement, we've gone towards greater institutionalisation in all the major areas, family, education, work, um, birth, death and dying. And I think you've got to see the institutionalisation of the dying as part of that process. And I think um, what's happening now is not a question of are our dying being institutionalised, but really the question we have to ask is how permeable are our institutions, um, particularly to communities? That's the real question in the 21st century. And um, I think, again, it's not helpful to make black and white comparisons. It's best not to say, was it better in the old days or is it better now? There were some things that were terrible in the old days and pain relief was one of them. If you were unlucky enough to live long, you were then unlucky enough to get cancer. Um, most people had a life expectancy throughout history of 18 to 25, so they didn't bother with cancer. You know, a lion took you, died in childbirth, this kind of thing. Trauma, short, sweet. Malnutrition, quite a good way to go, really, um, surprisingly. Um, but cancer and uh, neurological diseases, these drawn-out things... Um, public, modern medicine has done a lot, and, and particularly the hospice movement has done an awful lot to make things better. What they don't do well, as Nigel has pointed out repeatedly, is this issue about the partnership with the community, is in not recognising the values and gifts that people get and they draw from their families and their neighbours and their networks and their work people, and even the general public. So that bit is now being looked at, and, and that's a good thing. Douglas, how do you think the, the body um, goes from the bedroom or the front room to suddenly being in the chapel of repose? Why did that happen? Well, I'm sure there are very practical reasons for that, with central heating in houses, uh, the growth of the profession of funeral directors, that you make money out of the dead, that's always useful. Uh, in the medieval world, and let's not forget this, and for much of the world, for much of this history that Alan just referred to, the afterlife was relevant to your, your living and dying. Yeah, sure, sure. And so how you lived 
reflected in your afterlife or the life after that. Karma or merit to deem sin. And the churches, in a sense, and all the religions really, took death captive. And they took the ritual of death captive. You needed priests. And this goes back to settlement and the rise of, of towns and cities and so on. The most dramatic aspect of the West. Now, many American sociologists don't like this, and I radically disagree with them. They, they talk about Western Europe as though it's the exceptional case. For what reason? For a growing individualism, a growing secularism, a growing doing what you like with cremated remains, doing what you like with coffins and so on. What is that about? But it's taking your life into your own hands in a way and into your family, not leaving them with the priesties. And I say that as a, as a committed member of the Church of England. So there's a sense in which there's been a secularization of ritual. And that's about a secularization of destiny. So I think a really important issue um, has to do with this transformation of what your destiny will be like following your death. And many practical things like ashes and coffins are another side of this coin of an individual, but not individualism. Because I don't agree with the postmodernists who, who want this insulated self that exists like a little ball. Because we're all networked in some way or other, except for very few people. So that's what interests me in the transformation from the 20th into the 21st century. Oh, now one of the things that uh, people observe nowadays is that we are the first generation who, if we are lucky, um, mm. will probably not see a dead body until mm. maybe we're middle-aged. Mm. Um, and there is a theory, isn't there, or a, a sort of folk belief, I suppose, that seeing the body of somebody who is dead is somehow good for you. What have you observed? Uh, <clears throat> good, good question. Uh, I suppose it, it's uh, uh, um, the, the, the straightforward answer is that it might be good for some people and not so good for, for, for other people. But uh, uh, <laughs> what, what, what I find interesting ab- about this is that uh, in many cases, uh, and, and I, I could reflect here on some work uh, I've done with my colleagues back in Iceland, uh, but in some cases, the, the very people who, uh, who will say that uh, seeing the dead body is an important part of the grieving process, uh, that it kind of like sets people off on that journey, that they understand grief to be uh, the first station of it being the realization of the actuality of the loss. These very same people will, will, will go to some lengths to prepare the body in a particular way that in many senses effectively hides the fact of the death, not least the, 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 the decay that uh, inevitably follows. So um, I, I, I find the idea, uh, let's say, um, interesting and, 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 and curious, and, uh, and I wouldn't be able myself to comment very much on <clears throat> whether it might be good for people or not to, uh, to see a dead body. Angela, could I ask you uh, to talk a bit, of, pick up on Douglas's point about the secularisation of the rituals? Yes. Because um, you were regaling us um, before we came in with um, some stories of some floral tributes. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, um, I, I, I would hate to sort of, um, without asking the person's permission, which is always the worry that I talk about something in a, a gossipy way that defines, obviously, the privatisation of their funeral. But we have had some unusual floral tributes, which um, has it changed over the years. When I first started, we had a priest and two hymns and an organist sitting at the back. 
And we now have much more um, wearing Hawaiian shirts or wanting pink ties or wanting balloons or instead of flowers they've had a chocolate cake on the coffin or they'd like the countdown theme when the curtains close, which is a programme that counts down. Um, and the, the, the idea that now funerals are, in a sense, of more of a fun um, service for people seems to be much more um, through the younger generation requiring that. We have had some very unusual floral tributes, which I did mention yesterday at the tour. Um, we had one which was the funeral directors actually refused to put into the hearse, which I, I thought was very unfair on the family when they spent so much money on it, which said, my bitch. Um, and then we also had one where the lady remembered the, her partner, who was very young, who passed away, and the most important thing she thought of when she wanted a floral tribute was of a phallic symbol of him. And so we had a very nice pink and faded um, phallic symbol in flowers, um, which, again, which shows the fact that people see sometimes this as a humour, and that, I think, is a, a release for them, the fact that perhaps they also um, want to, to dress the person in special clothes, or they want to do the hair, or they want to put something personal in the coffin, adds to their wanting to be involved in it and sending the person on the way. There is a um, historical sort of thought that they're preparing the person for the afterlife even if they're not particularly religious there's a need to put a pack of cigarettes in with them or we've had people throwing um, coins in to graves, we've had West Indians pouring bottles of rum into the grave which smell lovely um, and we've had people wanting to put flowers in or um, somebody wanted great allotment person who liked doing vegetable gardening wanted uh, uh, some of his runner beans put in with him. So we've had some odd sort of requests, but it, it strikes me that the requirement for people to personalise and to add to things, whether the religious people are happy with that or not, seems to be less now. We have more civil celebrants, officiants, that personalise the funeral in a much more um, private way. Um, we have hymns and we have prayers, but we don't necessarily have priests or ministers, and that seems to be a much more of an ongoing thing. seems to be less of a connection, I think, with some faiths, with churches, or there's no faith at all. Hmm. Why is there so much support invested in helping people to recover uh, from their loss? Alan? <laughs> well, we did discuss this behind the scenes, and, um, you know, I think we... Most of us agree, I think, that a recover from loss is a very, very, very bad phrase. Uh, for two reasons. One is you don't recover from loss. And secondly, the implication or the language that's being used there pathologizes grief. It's like an illness, something you recover from. Illness is what you recover from. And grief and loss is not an illness. So <sighs> loss changes you as a person, and you can't change back. So some people find that difficult, and they need help with that, but they don't need help to recover from loss. They need help living with loss. It's a slightly different thing. Actually, it's not a slightly different thing. It's a very different thing. Um, and so uh, that's my main issue with that question, is the language. Um, I'll just put that out there. I think that's what we discussed earlier around that. Douglas, why do you think we, we want people to recover? We want to put it back the way it was. Fear. Uh, 
death is about emotions and identity. And human beings are often, we are often afraid of our own life, our own death. And sometimes other people are good to think ourselves in. What a wonderful sentence. So other people's loss is my loss. Other people's death is my death. If I can help somebody else, am I helping myself? And I think there's this incredible use of others as a screen for the self. So to get close, but not so close that it's you. Yeah, there's a love-hate relationship. You know, the great anthropologist Malinowski makes this point about the dead. They attract you and they repel you. There's these two sides to it. And, I mean, this is why in death studies we've got to be dreadfully careful that we can preoccupied in too much an attraction with the thing because really it's repelling us. So there's fear, I think, is a big one. And to come to Alan's point, which um, must be re-emphasized, that people tell me, I've fortunately in my life never broken an arm, but they tell me that when the bone resets, it's stronger than it was before. At least it's different than it was before. <laughs> and I think I have this kind of view about uh, death and, and rituals of death in human culture, that in, I wrote a study once and used the phrase over and over again, words against death, that the human animal, we got out of the caves and we started talking, and the greatest enemy we found was that this talking brain suddenly realized that one day it wouldn't be there. So what on earth did it do with this fact? Will it use this greatest weapon at its disposal, which was words? So we sang songs, we sing laments, we produce texts. Do you know what I mean? So many things to deal with this fear and to bring a sense of peace. It's no accident that that phrase, rest in peace or people going to spiritualists after someone has died, to see if they're all right. That's, if you like, the caring element, but it's care for the well-being of the other, but that's also, of course, looking after yourself at the same time. Nigel, talk us through the theory that has gained huge um, popular impetus, the idea that grief is a process through, and you travel, travel through stages of it and you come out at the end of those stages and, as I say, you're all right, you're back to where you were before. I think there, there are some problems, aren't there, with, with some research or not research but models that are created by people that we actually take them and, and we, we, we sort of think we have to live through them. And, you know, I suppose I'm thinking of Kubler-Ross um, particularly, that people still quote it endlessly, that people say it's in this stage or that stage or that stage. And I think there's been so much other research done on you know, bereavement processes and how people sort of live through them or, you know, live with them for the rest of their life. And I was thinking of how, you know, the, the dual process model, for instance, with the loss and restoration, that we move backwards and forwards, and that's actually okay and fine. Um, but I think there's a danger when models or research sort of don't get updated in people's practice and people's mindsets. And, and, and the Kubler-Ross thing, and Alan was telling us some very interesting stuff about it beforehand, you know, how, how it, it sort of somehow got very deeply embedded um, in, in, in the general sort of population through, through its popularity. And it's still there today. I still hear nurses particularly um, in the hospice talking about it and talking through it. And they have no sense of anything that's happened since in terms of research and practice. So, I, you know, I think, I think that's a real challenge for us. Um, in terms of how we challenge those things. Yeah, I think these, these points highlight what Anna was saying earlier and um, yourself earlier too, which is that 
the kind of um, psychological paternalism that says, you know, viewing the body as a good thing or speaking about it as a good thing is, uh, since World War II at least, where there's been an incredible amount of postmodern diversity, a sheer nonsense. Um, and the idea that there is one way to grieve is not true. And to the extent that which we develop models cut off from the people that they're addressing, we run the risk of creating, uh, making a nonsense, making a set of nonsense principles. Because there is a lot of diversity out there. And for some people, they need the phallic symbol of flowers. That's for them. You go and tell a Japanese person they should speak about their grief. They think you're crazy. And these Japanese people and these phallic simple flower people are all among us. They're all among us. And it's that diversity now which is the great challenge for the helping professions and the great challenge for humanities and social sciences as well. Uh, I I, I totally agree with with, with what's just been said. Uh, I think there is a... um, misplaced but quite considerable uh, both public and political insistence on, on recovery. And um, I, I, I want to emphasize to some extent the, the, the kind of vaguely speaking political bit here. Because I think the, um, I, I, I think the idea that, uh, that we are uh, in control of ourselves, that we know ourselves, we are in possession of ourselves, as it were, uh, is such an important part of the way in which our society is organized. You know, it's, that, that is meant to secure our right to cast a vote. That is meant to make us responsible in front of the law. And uh, that is, of course, the foundation of the, of the economic system that we live by. And I think the insistence on, on recovery, and I'm really kind of recalling something that Caroline Pierce said in her paper here yesterday, that um, I think the insistence on recovery is not least to do with the way in which death confronts us with the fact that we are actually never quite in control of, our, of ourselves. And uh, I think politically that's, that's quite a difficult uh, realisation. Yeah, I think this is interesting about, you know, wood is much denser than water in a way. And I'm very interested now in cell phones and stuff. That for some people, well, we can all speak about ourselves maybe, Life is more dense, is more meaningful, more intense somehow, like swimming in treacle or something. And the more people tied up are in networks, this network, that network, life becomes one kind of thing. And maybe we go through our lives and we're all going to die and all our networks will stop and we'll be gone and life won't be so intense and we won't be swimming in treacle nor in water, but who knows what. And anyway, I'm quite interested about this sort of sense of control. In one sense, Alan talking about theories is about that we are controlling stuff. Because I think the chattering classes needed Kubler-Ross. Because if you were 45, 55 years of age, and you were living in Britain, and you'd never seen a dead body, and you knew all sorts of things about all sorts of things, but you didn't know about death, she was a godsend. You could read this book, and all of a sudden, you were skilled. But the point is in life. You know, life's a difficult thing. And maybe we're not in control of it. And when we come, when we go through it, we've got to realize we're coming into land. <laughs> and I'm worried about young people who are spending, and this is an older man speaking, I'm worried about young people who are so much into the density of connectedness that being alone becomes a problem. 
Utterly personal opinion. But I think somehow or other that's going to be linked in with death. And it be fascinating to know what people in hospices or the like are going to be doing when this generation gets a bit along the line in disconnecting in order to die. But who knows? Yeah, I mean, just, just thinking <coughs> just general about the phone business, we have had young grandchildren, um, when we've had burials, we've had them put phones in coffins so they can phone grandma later that night to see if she's all right. And there's no, I mean, it's, it's odd to me because, I, you know, the person has died, or, uh, but to them it's vitally important that they ring that phone. They hopefully won't get an answer, but in theory that, that's for them is their comfort. I hope not, you never know. You think they will get an answer? <laughs> <laughs> you think they will get an I wonder what they would do if yeah. you did answer. Uh, so, so, but for, for the younger generation, that's their connection with, with death, is that the fact that they can probably try and phone and speak to them. But there's also this need to, to have a, a grief. We've had people visiting the same grave for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and they go regularly on a certain day, every day of the week, and they just tend it. Other people don't tend it. Physically, you can see the difference between people's personalities within a cemetery, whereby one person tends one grave, and the next one's got, you know, masses of flowers, and it's tended on a regular basis. And so the connection for them is that they come up every day or every week and do it. Other people will come up maybe at Christmas. But the need for them to, to sort of think about the stages, that the grief doesn't go away, it changes the person, I feel, and it makes them into a different person. But they can never, some people never get over it. And some people don't want to get over it. Some people quite like the feeling of grief and the need to feel sad and lonely because it makes them feel they're still in contact with the person that they loved and cared for. Mm. Mm. Nigel, you were saying that... that um, uh, uh, sorry, you were saying before we came in something about our assumptions about the way men and women grieve mm. and, and what you had observed. Well, I, I was sort of, I suppose I was referring to some um, research studies on depression that had been done with the Maudsley and St. Christopher's Hospice, where um, that I think prior to that, most of the research that had been done had been around, uh, had been around women and particularly the prevalence of, of depression in women um, following the death of a, a male partner. But um, I suppose what the studies, they, 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 which was, they were published in sex peer review journals, um, sort of came up with was that actually quite a lot of men suffer from depression following the death of their wife because of the lack of someone to look after them. And that actually was, was, was quite a, a new take on, on the terms of, 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 of gender in terms of, of, of responses around bereavement. Um, so I think, in a sense, research can affect how we, how we see people um, it, it, you know, in, in that kind of way. And it seems quite simple, but actually it, it, it's quite a major... Andrew, do you observe a difference in people when they come back? Yeah, perhaps look at books of remembrance yes. in the men and the women. Yes, we, we have a, a book of remembrance and they sort of come back on the anniversary. And quite often we, we take the, the ladies up and they see their husband's entry and they've come up with their granddaughter or grandson. But quite often we see the men come up on their own. Um, they've not perhaps coordinated some connection with their grandchildren in the same way. They're perhaps not so able to, to express. I mean, we're talking perhaps slightly an older generation here that they can't express to their family that they want them to come to the Book of Remembrance because it's seen as a, a weak sort of thing. They don't want to be seen as being upset. They're trying to cope. But physically, you can see quite often that the gentlemen haven't ironed their shirts and they're also slightly not quite coordinated and they've perhaps forgotten to bring flowers because they didn't think about it. So quite often they've had the, 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 
the wives that have tended and looked after them, cooked their food and ironed their shirts, and suddenly that's all fallen away from them, and they're desperately trying to manage and maintain the same sort of appearance and connection, but they are struggling, and there doesn't seem to be anybody out there that reaches them. Um, they don't want to tell their family that they're struggling because it's seen as been a, a weak trait of the macho man in a way and that's very sad and you see them and I've had more hugs and touchy feelies with older gentlemen which obviously is not unusual but um, uh, for, for just for the fact that I, I feel so sad for them that, that they are unable to express their grief to people that care for them and they are quite happy for me to hug and kiss them, I don't know why um, but I don't have that with the ladies, I mean not because obviously we're another but because they are more capable in a sense of dealing with things and they are more planned, they're still grieving they're still upset but they have seemed to have a, a, a way of, of coping, a mechanism of uh, contact with family. But the gentlemen are definitely my, my poor relations, and I, I love and care for them as much as I possibly can. <laughs> and that brings the second se section of this discussion to a close. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu forward slash iTunes U.